Chapter Five of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five. There was an old house built in a style which acquired the mint mark of fashion of about the reign of George the First, and was considered by those of the English or opposite party to be peculiarly well qualified for the habitation of Hanover rats. It stood at a little distance from the then small hamlet of Harborne and was plunged into one of the southern apertures of the wood of that name, having its gardens and pleasure-grounds around it, with a terrace and a lawn stretching out to the verge of a small parish road, which passed at the distance of somewhat less than a quarter of a mile from the windows. It was all of red brick, and looked square and formal enough, with the two wings projecting like the akimbo arms of some untamed virago, straight and resolute as a redoubt. The numerous windows, however, with very tolerable spaces between them, the numerous chimneys with every sort of form and angle, the numerous doors of every shape and size, and the square precision of the whole, bespoke it a very capacious building, and the inside justified fully the idea which the mind of a traveller naturally formed from the outside. It was, in truth, a roomy and in some cases a very convenient abode but it was laid out upon a particular plan, which it may not be amiss to write down, for the practical instruction of the reader unlearned in such edifices. In the centre of the ground floor was a large hall in a cruciform shape, each of the limbs being about fifteen feet wide. The two shorter arms of the cross stretched from side to side of the building in its width, the two longer from end to end of its length. The southern termination of the shorter arms was the great hall door, the northern arm, which formed the passage between the various ranges of offices, extended to a door at the back, opening into a courtyard surrounded by coach-houses, stables, cowsheds, pigsties, and hen-roosts. But the offices, and the passage between them, were shut off from the main hall and the rest of the mansion by double doors, and the square of fifteen feet in the centre of the hall was, to the extent of about two-thirds of the whole, occupied by a large, low-stepped, broad-balustraded oaken staircase. The eastern and western limbs of the cross afforded the means of communicating with various rooms, such as library, dining-room, drawing-room, music-room, magistrate's room, gentleman's room, and billiard room, with one or two others to which no name had been applied. Many of these rooms had doors which led into the one adjacent, but this was not invariably the case, for from the main corridor branched off several little passages, separating in some instances one chamber from the other, and leading out upon the terrace by the smaller doors which we have noticed above. What was the use of these passages and doors nobody was ever able to divine, and it remains a mystery to the present day which I shall not attempt to solve by venturing any hypothesis upon so recondite a subject. The second floor above was laid out much in the same way as the one below, except that one of the limbs of the cross was wanting, the space over the great door being appropriated to a very tolerable bedroom. From this floor to the other descended two or three staircases, the principal one being the great open flight of steps which I have already mentioned, and the second or next in importance being a stone staircase which reached the ground between the double doors that shut out the main hall from the offices. Having thus given some idea of the interior of the building, I will only pause to notice that, at the period I speak of, 
it had one very great defect. It was very much out of repair, not indeed of that sort of substantial repair which is necessary to comfort, but of that pleasant repair which is agreeable to the eye. It was well and solidly built, and was quite wind and water tight, but although the builders of the day in which it was erected were, as every one knows, peculiarly neat in their brickwork, yet time would have its way even with their constructions, and he had maliciously chiselled out the pointing from between the sharp well-cut bricks, scraped away the mortar from the stone copings, and cracked and blistered the painting of the woodwork. This labour of his had not only given a venerable, but also a somewhat dilapidated appearance to the mansion, and some green mould with which he had taken the pains to dabble all the white parts of the edifice did not decrease the look of decay. Sweeping round from the parish road that we have mentioned was a branch leading by the side of the lawn, and a gentle ascent up to the terrace and to the great door, and carriages on arriving passed along the whole front of the house by the western angle before they reached the courtyard behind. But from that courtyard there were various other means of exit, one to the kitchen garden, one or two to the other courts, and one into the wood which came within fifty yards of the enclosure, for, to use the ordinary romance phrase, Harborn House was literally bosomed in wood. The windows, however, at the front commanded a fine view of a rich and undulating country, plentifully garnished with trees, but still for a considerable distance exposed to the eye from the elevated ground upon which the mansion was placed. A little hamlet was seen at the distance of about two miles in front. I rather suspect it was Kenchel, and to the eastward the house looked over the valley towards the high ground by Woodchurch and Woodchurch Beacon, catching a blue line which probably was Romney Marsh. Between Woodchurch, however, and itself, was seen standing out straight and upright, a very trim-looking white dwelling, flanked by some pleasant groves, and to the west were seen one or two gentlemen's seats, scattered about over the face of the country. Behind, nothing, of course, was to be seen but treetops, except from the window of one of the attics, whence the housemaid could describe Biddenden Windmill and the top of Biddenden Church. Harborn Wood was indeed at that time very extensive, joining on to the large piece of woodland from which it is now separated, and stretching out as far as that place with an unpleasant name called Gallows Green, the whole of this space, and a considerable portion of the cultivated ground around, was within the manor of the master of the mansion, Sir Robert Croyland of Harborn, the elder brother of that Mr. Zachary Croyland, whom we have seen travelling down into Kent, with two companions in the newly established stage-coach. About four days after that memorable journey, a traveller on horseback, followed by a servant leading another horse, and with a portmanteau behind him, rode up the little parish road we have mentioned, took the turning which led to the terrace, and drew in his bridle at the great door of Harborn House. I would describe him again, but I have already given the reader so correct and accurate a picture of Sir Edward Digby that he cannot make any mistake. The only change which had taken place in his appearance since he set out from London was produced by his now being dressed in a full military costume, but nevertheless the eyes of a fair lady who was in the drawing-room, and had a full view of the terrace, conveyed to her mind, as she saw him ride up, the impression that he was a very handsome man indeed. In two minutes more, which were occupied by the opening of the door and sundry directions given by the young baronet to his servant, 
Sir Edward Digby was ushered into the drawing-room, and advanced with a frank, free, military air, though unacquainted with any of the persons it contained. As his arrival about that hour was expected, the whole family of Harborne House was assembled to receive him, and before we proceed farther we may as well give some account of the different persons of whom the little circle was composed. The first whom Sir Edward's eyes fell upon was the master of the mansion, who had risen, and was coming forward to welcome his guest. Sir Robert Croyland, however, was so different a person from his brother in every point, that the young officer could hardly believe that he had the baronet before him. He was a large, heavy-looking man, with good features and expressive eyes, but sallow in complexion, and though somewhat corpulent, having that look of loose, flabby obesity, which is generally an indication of bad health. His dress, though scrupulously clean and in the best fashion of the time, fitted him ill, being too large even for his large person, and the setting of the diamond ring which he wore upon his hand was scarcely more yellow than the hand itself. On his face he bore a look of habitual thought and care, approaching moroseness, which even the smile he assumed on Sir Edward's appearance could not altogether dissipate. In his tone, however, he was courtly and kind, though perhaps a little pompous, expressed his delight at seeing his old friend's son in Harborne House, shook him warmly by the hand, and then led him ceremoniously forward to introduce him to his sister, Mrs. Barbara Croyland, and his two daughters. The former lady might very well have applied to her fielding's inimitable description of the old maid. Her appearance was very similar, her station and occupation much the same, but nevertheless, in all essential points, Mrs. Barbara Croyland was a very different person from the sister of Squire Alworthy. She was a kind-hearted soul as ever existed, gentle in her nature, anxious to do the very best for everybody, a little given to policy for the purpose of accomplishing that end, and consequently, nine times out of ten, making folks very uncomfortable in order to make them comfortable, and doing all manner of mischief for the purpose of setting things right. No woman ever had a more perfect abnegation of self than Mrs. Barbara Croyland, in all things of great importance. She had twice missed a very good opportunity of marriage by making up a match between one who was quite ready to be her own lover and one of her female friends, for whom he cared very little. She had lent the whole of her own private fortune, except a small annuity, which by some chance had been settled upon her, to her brother Sir Robert, without taking any security whatsoever for principal or interest, and she was always ready, when there was anything in her purse, to give it away to the worthy or unworthy, rather, indeed, preferring the latter, from the conviction that they were more likely to be destitute of friends than those who had some claim upon society. Nevertheless, Mrs. Barbara Croyland was not altogether without that small sort of selfishness which is usually termed vanity. She was occasionally a little affronted and indignant with her friends when they disapproved of her spoiling her whole plans with the intention of facilitating them. She knew that her design was good, and she thought it very ungrateful in the world to be angry when her good designs produced the most opposite results to those which she intended. She was fully convinced, too, that circumstances were perversely against her, and yet for her life she could not refrain from trying to make those circumstances bend to her purpose, notwithstanding all the nips on the knuckles she received, and she had still some scheme going on, which, though continually disappointed, rose up hydra-like, with a new head springing out as soon as the other was cut off. 
as it was at her suggestion and in favour of certain plans which she kept deep in the recesses of her own bosom that sir robert croyland had claimed acquaintance with sir edward digby on the strength of an old friendship with his father and had invited him down to harborne house immediately on the return of his regiment to england it may well be supposed that miss barbara received him with her most gracious smiles which to say the truth though the face was wrinkled with age and the complexion not very good were exceedingly sweet and benignant springing from a natural kindness of heart which if guided by a sounder discretion would have rendered her one of the most amiable persons on earth after a few words of simple courtesy on both parts sir edward turned to the other two persons who were in the room where he found metal more attractive at least for the eyes the first to whom he was introduced was a young lady who seemed to be about one and twenty years of age though she had in fact just attained another year and though sir robert somewhat hurried him on to the next who was younger the keen eye of the young officer marked enough to make him aware that if so cold and so little disposed to look on a lover as her uncle had represented she might well become a very dangerous neighbour to a man with a heart not well guarded against the power of beauty her hair eyes and eyelashes were almost black and her complexion of a clear brown with the rose blushing faintly in the cheek but the eyes were of a deep blue the whole form of the head the fall of the hair the bend of the neck from the shoulders were all exquisitely symmetrical and classical and nothing could be more lovely than the line of the brow and the chiselled cutting of the nose the upper lip small and delicately drawn the under lip full and slightly apart showing the pearl-like teeth beneath the turn of the ear and the graceful line in the throat might all have served as models for the sculptor or painter for the colouring was as rich and beautiful as the form and when she rose and stood to receive him with the small hand leaning gently on the arm of the chair he thought he had never seen anything more graceful than the figure or more harmonious than its calm dignity with the lofty gravity of her countenance if there was a defect in the face it was perhaps that the chin was a little too prominent but yet it suited well with the whole countenance and with its expression giving it decision without harshness and a look of firmness which the bright smile that fluttered for a moment round the lips deprived of everything that was not gentle and kind there was soul there was thought there was feeling in the whole look and digby would fain have paused to see those features animated in conversation but her father led him on after a single word of introduction to present him to his younger daughter who with some points of resemblance offered a strange contrast to her sister she too was very handsome and apparently about two years younger but hers was the style of beauty which though it deserves a better name is generally termed pretty all the features were good and the hair exceedingly beautiful but the face was not so oval the nose perhaps a little too short and the lips too sparkling with smiles to impress the mind at first sight so much as the countenance of the other she seemed all happiness and in looking to the expression and at her bright blue eyes as they looked out through the black lashes like violets from a clump of dark leaves it was scarcely possible to fancy that she had ever known a touch of care or sorrow or that one of the anxieties of life had ever even brushed her lightly with its wing she seemed the flower just opening to the morning sunshine the fruit before the bloom had been washed away by one shower 
Her figure, too, was full of young grace. Her movements were all quicker, more wild and free than her sister's, and as she rose to receive Sir Edward Digby, it was more with the air of an old friend than a new acquaintance. Indeed, she was the first of the family who had seen him, for hers were the eyes which had watched his approach from the window, so she felt as if she knew him better than any of them. There was something very winning in the frank and cordial greeting with which she met him, and in an instant it had established a sort of communication between them, which would have taken hours, perhaps days, to bring about with her sister. As Sir Edward Digby did not come there to fall in love, he would fain have resisted such influences even at the beginning, and perhaps the words of old Mr. Croyland had somewhat put him upon his guard. But it was of no use being upon his guard, for, fortify himself as strongly as he would, Zara went through all his defences in an instant, and seeming to take it for granted that they were to be great friends, and that there was not the slightest obstacle whatever to their being perfectly familiar in a ladylike and gentlemanlike manner, of course they were so in five minutes, though he was a soldier who had seen some service, and she an inexperienced girl just out of her teens. But all women have a sort of experience of their own, or, if experience be not the right name, an intuition in matters where the other sex is concerned, which supplies to them very rapidly a great part of that which long converse with the world bestows on men. Too true that it does not always act as a safeguard to their own hearts, true that it does not always guide them right in their own actions, but still it does not fail to teach them the best means of winning where they wish to win, and if they do not succeed, it is far more frequently that the cards which they hold are not good than that they play the game unskilfully. Whether Sir Robert Croyland had or had not any forethought in his invitation of Sir Edward Digby, and, like a prudent father, judged that it would be quite as well his youngest daughter should marry a wealthy baronet, he was too wise to let anything like design appear, and though he suffered the young officer to pursue his conversation with Zara for two or three minutes longer than he had done with his sister, he soon interposed by taking the first opportunity of telling his guests the names of those whom he had invited to meet him that day at dinner. "'We shall have but a small party,' he said in a somewhat apologetic tone, "'for several of our friends are absent just now, but I have asked my good and eccentric brother Zachary to meet you today, Sir Edward.' and also my excellent neighbour, Mr. Radford of Radford Hall, a very superior man indeed under the surface, though the manner may be a little rough. His son, too, I trust will join us. And he glanced his eye towards Edith, whose face grew somewhat paler than it had been before. Sir Robert instantly withdrew his gaze, but the look of both father and daughter had not been lost upon Digby, and he replied, "'I have the pleasure of knowing your brother already, Sir Robert. "'We were fellow travellers as far as Ashford four or five days ago. "'I hope he is well.' "'Oh, quite well, quite well,' answered the baronet. "'But as odd as ever, nay, odder, I think, for his expedition to London, "'that which seems to polish and soften other men, "'but renders him rougher and more extraordinary. "'But he was always very odd, very odd indeed, even as a boy.' "'But he was always kind-hearted, Brother Robert,' observed Miss Barbara. "'And though he may be a little odd, he has been in odd places, you know, India and the like. "'And besides, it does not do to talk of his oddity, as you are doing always, "'for if he heard of it, he might leave all his money away.' "'He is only odd, I think,' 
said Edith Croyland, by being kinder and better than other men. Sir Edward Digby turned towards her with a warm smile, replying, So it struck me, Miss Croyland. He is so good and right-minded himself that he is at times a little out of patience with the faults and follies of others. At least such was my impression from all I saw of him. It was a just one, answered the young lady, and I am sure, Sir Edward, the more you see of him, the more you will be inclined to overlook the oddities for the sake of the finer qualities. It seemed to Sir Edward Digby that the commendations of Sir Robert Croyland's brother did not seem the most grateful of all possible sounds to the ears of the baronet, who immediately after announced that he would have the pleasure of conducting his young guest to his apartments, adding that they were early people in the country, their usual dinner hour being four o'clock, though he found that the fashionable people of London were now in the habit of dining at half-past four. Sir Edward accordingly followed him up the great oaken staircase to a very handsome and comfortable room, with a dressing-room at the side, in which he found his servant already busily employed in disburdening his bags and portmanteau of their contents. Sir Robert paused for a moment to see that his guest had everything which he might require, and then left him. But the young baronet did not proceed immediately to the business of the toilet, seating himself before the window of the bedroom, and gazing out with a thoughtful expression, while his servant continued his operations in the next room. From time to time the man looked in as if he had something to say, but his master continued in a reverie, of which it may be as well to take some notice. His first thought was, I must lay out the plan of my campaign, but I must take care not to get my wing of the army defeated while the main body is moving up to give battle. On my life I am a great deal too good-natured to put myself in such a dangerous position for a friend. The artillery that the old gentleman spoke of is much more formidable than I expected. My worthy colonel did not use so much of love's glowing colours in his painting as I supposed, but after all there's no danger. I am proof against all such shots, and I fancy I must use little Zara for the purpose of getting at her sister's secrets. There can be no harm in making a little love to her, the least little bit possible. It will do my pretty coquette no harm, and me none either. It may be well to know how the land lies, however, and I dare say that fellow of mine has made some discoveries already, but the surest way to get nothing out of him is to ask him, so I must let him take his own way. His thoughts then turned to another branch of the same subject, and he went on pondering rather than thinking for some minutes more. There is a state of mind which can scarcely be called thought, for thought is rapid and progressive like the flight of a bird, whether it be in the gyrations of the swallow or the straightforward course of the rook. But in the mode or condition of which I speak, the mind seems rather to hover over a particular object, like the hawk eyeing carefully that which is beneath it. And this state can no more be called thought than the hovering of the hawk can be called flight. Such was the occupation of Sir Edward Digby, as I have said, for several minutes, and then he went on to his conclusions. "'She loves him still,' he said to himself. "'Of that I feel sure. "'She is true to him still, and steadfast in her truth. "'Whatever may have been said or done has not been hers, "'and that is a great point gained.' For now, with station, rank, distinction, and competence at least, he presents himself in a very different position from any which he could assume before, and unless on account of some unaccountable prejudice the old gentleman can have no objection. Oh yes, she loves him still, I feel very sure, 
The calm gravity of that beautiful face has only been written there so early by some deep and unchanged feeling. We never see the sparkling brightness of youth so shadowed but by some powerful and ever-present memory which, like the deep bass notes of a fine instrument, gives a solemn tone even to the liveliest music of life. She can smile, but the brow is still grave. There is something underneath it, and we must find out exactly what that is. Yet I cannot doubt. I am sure of it. Here, Summers, are not those things ready yet? I shall be too late for dinner. Oh, no, sir, replied the man coming in and putting up the back of his hand to his head, in military fashion. Your honour won't be too late. The great bell rings always half an hour before. Then Mr. Radford is always a quarter of an hour behind his time. I wonder who Mr. Radford is, said Sir Edward Digby, as if speaking to himself. He seems a very important person in the county. I can tell you, sir, said the man, he is, or was, the richest person in the neighbourhood, and has got Sir Robert quite under his thumb, they say. He was a merchant or a shopkeeper, the butler told me, in Hythe, but there was more money came in than ever went through his counting-house, and what, between trading one way or another, he got together a great deal of riches, bought this place here in the neighbourhood, and set up for a gentleman. His son is to be married to Miss Croyland, they say, but the servants think that she hates him, and fancy that he would himself rather have her sister. The latter part of this speech was that which interested Sir Edward Digby the most, but he knew that there was a certain sort of perversity about his servant, which made him less willing to answer a distinct question than to volunteer any information, and therefore he fixed upon another point, inquiring, "'What do you mean, Summers, by saying that he is or was the richest man in the country?' "'Why, sir, that is as it may be,' answered the man. "'But one thing is certain. Miss Croyland has three times refused to marry this young Radford, notwithstanding all her father could say.' And as for the young gentleman himself, why, he's no gentleman at all, going about with all the bad characters in the county, and carrying on his father's old trade like a highwayman. It has not quite answered so well, though, for they say old Radford lost fully £50,000 by his last venture, which was run ashore somewhere about Romney Hoy. The boats were sunk, part of the goods seized, and the rest sent to the bottom. You may be sure he's a daredevil, however, for whenever the servants speak of him, they sink their voice to a whisper, as if the fiend were at their elbow. Sir Edward Digby was very well inclined to hear more, but while the man was speaking the bell he had mentioned rang, and the young baronet, who had a certain regard for his own personal appearance, hastened to dress and to descend to the drawing-room. End of chapter 5